Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we will be covering a story called Black Corfu by Karen Russell. This was published in 2018. We read it in her short story collection, Orange World and Other Stories. We're going to be taking two episodes to cover this story. So this first episode is just the recap, and then we'll have a separate discussion episode. Yes. And of course, we are back a week early to be doing this story. And the reason that we are is that this was commissioned by a Patreon supporter. And so this becomes an extra episode uh, on top of what we normally plan to do this year. And of course, as always, we want to say a huge thanks to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode, but an extra special thanks because the supporter, in fact, commissioned four episodes all at once. This is the first of them. There will be two others that will be appearing here on Elder Sign. Uh, we're going to finally get some Laird Baron on the show. That is something I'm super excited about. And also some Gertrude Atherton, who is someone I've been wanting to get on the show for a long time as well. And and then also Valerie and I are going to be reading the John Scalzi novel Red Shirts together, which uh, is something else that I'm super <laughs> looking forward to. I mean, mostly I'm looking forward to hearing Valerie talk about Red Shirts, and I think that's going to be great. So thank you so much for very generously commissioning all of these episodes. It's going to be a blast. Yeah, we appreciate it so much. As we always say, this gives us an opportunity to cover stuff that we maybe otherwise wouldn't normally cover, though I've been wanting to do Karen Russell uh, on this show for a long time. So I am extremely grateful to our Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. For those of you who are listening, who are wondering how I can, how you can commission an episode, uh, email us and find out. You can also support us on Patreon. And if you want to find a way to support us, but you can't financially please review our show. Please tell people you know about it. It helps us out so much to just get the word out. So thank you, especially to the supporter who commissioned this episode. And you can also always contact us on you know Twitter or, or Reddit or just you know make a post on the forum. You can you know you can find us on the internet if even if you don't feel like emailing us. So I also have been wanting to do some Karen Russell for a long time, and I'm really excited about this story about Black Corfu. I absolutely, I mean, just you know, I adored this story. I won't be shy about that. I'm really excited that we've got this collection now, and that uh, she's going to be in the rotation now. Is you know, assuming that uh, that the people who get to vote, the Patreon supporters who get to vote, also really like. Karen Russell and really like this story and want uh, more of it. I'm looking forward to doing more. But this story is right in my wheelhouse. Uh, this is a story set in the early modern Venetian Empire. That's uh, the early 17th century and, and dealing with some interesting social themes as well, which is mostly what we'll focus on in the discussion. Uh, but it's also got some really cool weird fiction elements. In fact, maybe in some ways, some more weird fiction elements than some of the weird fiction stories that we've been doing recently uh, on, the, on the show, but has also kind of a magical realism vibe at the same same time. So that might also make uh, for some fun stuff to do in the discussion. But before we get to any of that, we should go through the story. So Brandon, why don't you get us uh, going on the recap here? Yeah, absolutely. I do want to say, you know, with regards to the, the Venetian Empire aspect of this story, I mean, this is the same world, the same conception of the world that Gene Wolfe uses in the Book of the Long Sun. And I just really loved that aspect as well. I was reading this story thinking, uh, I got to reread Book of the Long Sun soon, even because it'll take us 20 years to get to it on the Gene Wolfe <laughs> Literary Podcast. Uh, so yes, I'm super grateful for that sort of world that we're investing in, in this uh, story, Black Corfu too. 
Well, as you said, Glenn, this story takes place in 1620 in Croatia, and its protagonist is a doctor, and the story's told in a fairly close third-person perspective, though there's some omniscience leaking through the gaps, uh, as, as, as we'll see. And it opens at night. The doctor, who is sleeping naked, as he often does, is thinking about losing patience. And he hasn't done this before. He hasn't lost a patient, but it's on his mind for some reason. His wife is sleeping next to him under layers of sheets, sort of in contrast to him sleeping naked. And he's really concerned that she believes a rumor about him uh, that's beginning to spread. And he imagines that he can see the way that the rumor is shaping her view of him in her mind. I'm going to struggle with ways of describing this concept throughout the story, but this is the first introduction of it, that the rumor is reshaping his wife's image of himself in her mind, and he's imagining just what's taking place there. He wonders if he can remove the rumor from her to excise it and so be viewed in in the proper way, to be viewed in the way he feels he ought to be viewed by her. The rumor isn't true, and he doesn't want it infecting his household. But he believes that his wife, by hearing the rumor and imagining him as the man who is capable of whatever act has been alleged to take place, is a betrayal, that this act of imagination is an actual betrayal. He says out loud, please, please, I performed my duty perfectly. I could never make such a mistake. And his wife, who he thought was sleeping, replies. She says, I am not even thinking about you. I am listening for the girls. And now the doctor hears what woke up his wife. His middle daughter is sobbing. And he, I guess, feels a little ashamed that he was so caught up in his own thoughts that he didn't hear his daughter's cries. So he puts on his robe and he goes to her. And his middle daughter is clearly his favorite. His middle daughter is concerned about what will happen to her father now. She's heard the rumor just by being out and about. And the doctor is angry because the rumors penetrated the walls of his home. And he now worries about the way the rumor will morph and ruin him even further. He thinks about being executed. And he thinks that it won't matter if he he's killed through some you know judicious state punishment because his reputation is already ruined. He won't be able to continue working. And hey, by the way, all of this started three days ago. Wow, yeah, this this is an opening. I mean, it's just awesome. So let's uh, let's do some unpacking here because I think Russell has a number of strands in this opening scene, just in these first three pages. My impulse here is to start by orienting us in time and place, but actually I think let's do that last. And instead, let's focus on the the characters here and the narrative. So our protagonist is a doctor of some sort. He's lost a patient. That's that's what the story is going to be about. This is something, in fact, that he's he worries he's going to get in trouble for losing the, the patient. There's this concern by his daughter that he's going to be sent to the garrison. But in fact, the doctor knows that if there's going to be a punishment, it will be worse than going to, to prison. And he imagines actually being strung up by the uh, Aleppo pines, the dark Aleppo pines that dot the island, that they're on the island of Cortula. 
But the thing is, the doctor, right, he's claiming that he has not done the thing that he's accused of doing. And so Russell here has set up an external conflict, right? The doctor is going to want to be proving his innocence. But it also seems like the more important conflict for the doctor is actually with his wife, who he's very worried will believe or maybe even is believing the accusation, this rumor that he has lost a patient, that he's done something to lose this patient. And that is something that he can't bear. And the same you know, for his, his daughters as well, the idea that his family would believe this about him. He just can't bear that. At the same time, though, it's totally clear that he's very self-involved. He's, he's too busy thinking about his troubles to even hear his daughter crying in their house. And that really is going to be the drama of this story, his internal obsession with these rumors. But there is also something material happening in the story as well, something that Russell is masterfully only hinting at here, which is that we understand that the doctor has been accused of losing a patient. And then we learn that men are fanning out across the island looking for that patient. But, you know, lose a patient means the patient died, right? Not that like a patient has gone missing usually. So uh, what's up with that? But then we also get all this information about how the doctor uh, is thinking about how his patients are buried in consecrated ground before they can pose a danger to him. And so he doesn't have to wear uh, a mask. This, this comes up in the context of thinking about um, the uh, hooded uniforms worn by physicians during the Great Plague. Uh, this is the, the beaky invention of Charles de Lorme. May, uh, as uh, Russell puts it here, this is the real famous uh, bubonic plague uh, doctor outfit. It's like actually a pretty great Halloween costume. Everybody knows what this is. Uh, in fact, this has been on my mind lately because uh, I'm teaching the Black Death this semester, and all my students, of course, think that this is from the Black Death. It's not. Uh, I'll talk maybe a little more precisely about that later. But Russell is invoking this image here. So these things, all these things are really just hints. They're, they're an interesting contrast, right? This is the weird element of this story. Russell's using this image of the famous Plague Doctor costume with this beaked mask to get an image of weird early modern doctoring in our minds. This is just expertly done. Uh, I will say that what is not expertly done here is that her dates are all messed up. It's not going to be of any consequence, but it really confused me at first and took me out of this story, you know, at least momentarily. It's a beautiful story, so it was not hard to get back into it. But <laughs> we know from the heading that we're in 1620, but then she invokes this costume and attributes in its invention as a response to the Great Plague of uh, 1529. That's uh, what she says here. But the thing is that she actually means the Great Plague of 1629. This was a, a massive outbreak of plague in northern Italy, including Venice. It was probably the biggest outbreak of bubonic plague since the, the Black Death in, you know, the 13 late late 1340s and it's that plague that saw the invention of this famous costume but that happened 9 years after this story is set not 100 years before as i said doesn't matter uh, and if i weren't teaching about plagues this semester i might not really have noticed <laughs> but i wanted to did want to comment on it here and then and, and really thinking about dates right that can bring us around to situating us in time and place i'm going to talk more about this in the discussion but we are on the island of cortula in the adriatic uh, this is largely populated by Croatian speakers, but for most of early modernity, it was part of the Republic of Venice, which is uh, going to matter a little bit to our story, uh, though it will matter more in the discussion, I think. But uh, one more thing to say about this is just that the name of the story can be confusing because Corfu is also an island that belonged to Venice at this time, though that is a Greek-speaking place, and it is not the same place as the island where this story is set. But Cortula is also called Black Corfu because, in fact, Cortula is the Greek name for Corfu. So, you know, 
know, both islands have the same name and to distinguish the big one from the little one where this story is taking place. Uh, this one is labeled black because of these dark pine trees. So it's a, it's an image of a dark and eerie forest that gives it the name. Uh, but the name is also going to be uh, a double entendre here, as we will see. So, okay. So I know that I have hijacked this episode already when it's actually just, you know, my job today to make the Star Wars jokes. Well, uh, you, Brandon, tell the people what the story is. But I do also want to take a minute to appreciate Russell's writing here. Uh, first of all, right, this opening is in the present tense. That's not going to be true of the whole story. But this gives this opening scene a real immediacy. And I also just want to read a descriptive line from this first page. I think, you know, it would be real easy, actually, just to want to read this entire story into the microphone because it is so beautiful. The just prose is so gorgeous. I'm going to, you know, limit myself, but here is one I want to do at this top of the show. <laughs> now, here's what Russell writes. Their room pulses with the moon. He can almost hear the purr of the rumor, yawning awake inside of her, stretching and extending itself. And I mean, just, you know, what an image, what a great use of pulse and purr here. I mean, and also just great alliteration there with those words, the, the sound of that. And what a great way to introduce rumor, which is going to be a motif of this story. It's just, it's just absolutely awesome. And it's just breathtakingly brilliant. But I have been yammering for too long, uh, you know, for what amounts to just two and a half pages. I'm getting in the way of us actually learning what the rumor is even about. So I'm going to step aside and let us get back to it. Yeah. I mean, you referenced what turned out to be my core struggle in trying to recap this story was, I thought this is one we should just read on air, you know, just read it, have an hour and a half episode or so of us <laughs> just reading this story. And then we can talk about it. Uh, of course we don't have the rights to it, but it is so beautifully written. I mean, the prose here is astonishingly good, but you're right back to the story. We're going to learn more about the doctor here. He is not a typical surgeon or even really a typical medical professional. His status on the Island has him practicing his trade in, you know, what Karen Russell calls Neolithic caves beneath the city. And he once had high hopes of healing people. He wanted to help children walk again, but now he hobbles children. And once in a while, all he can do is laugh hysterically at the big yawning gap between what he thought his life was going to be, what he wanted and what he became instead. And this sort of laughter, this hysterical outbreak frightens his family. The doctor is known as the posthumous surgeon of Cortula Island. After he dies, we learn he will be revered, or at least he hopes he will be. And while he was working, we further learn no Foucault was sighted. You see, on, on these islands off the coast of Dalmatia, the dead walk after their death. And the doctor's job is to ensure that the dead cannot rise again. He has a perfect record. The island the doctor lives on, you know, we've mentioned this, it's called Cortula, and the Greeks called it, as you already mentioned, Glenn, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> uh, the Black Corfu, and this is when they settled it in the 6th century BC. It has changed hands over time, and the doctor was born during the longest period of Venetian rule over Cortula. His family were slaves, and his grandfather escaped from a galley of a ship to Black Corfu, and the, and the doctor himself is black. His mother was black, and blacks are the lowest caste on the island. And his mother raised him not to lash out against the injustice of their station, a lesson that he really didn't understand or realize. He, he didn't understand how she could 
not respond to the constant slights and injustice that he experienced growing up until he had children himself and found the necessity of being a good example of living with dignity of not lashing out against these things. But he had always dreamed of becoming a doctor and he he hoped to be one who could practice out in the open. But alas, his skin color and his station kept him in the caves. All of this is clearly backstory, and we're still leading up to three days ago, which doesn't have kind of a hard and bright line where we cross over into the mansion where three days ago this rumor started. But clearly, we're getting backstory here. So we're still leading up to that time when the rumor that destroyed the doctor's reputation began. Right. We're, we're still not very far into this story at all. And again, I've got a lot to say about the backstory that's just been set up for us. Probably I'll end up being quiet for all of the third act. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe that can be a fun drinking game for, for listeners. But uh, yeah, Russell's got three things going on in this section. Narratively, as you said, Brandon, this is the backstory. It's the backstory that sets up the character arc for us and, and also does orient us in time and place. I probably didn't need to do that in my last comment. I kind of forgot that she did that here at the at this point in the story with much better prose than, than than I had. But the the big thing that we learn here is that our protagonist, the, the doctor, is black and that he is held outside of society because of that. The story here is that he's the grandson of an African slave who had been on a Portuguese vessel, but escaped to Cortula, where the law required that he be given asylum so long as he paid an annual fee to the, the government. Now, I have no idea if that was the law on Cortula in the 17th century, but Russell, Russell does claim here that the slave trade was outlawed in the Venetian Empire since the 10th century. Uh, by the way, I guess I should just say here uh, that today, Venice is mostly just a tourist destination, and actually maybe not for long, but uh, from about 1200 until 1700, Venice had an empire in the Adriatic uh, and, and also the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, Venice controlled almost all of the islands, including Cyprus. It does start to lose those islands to the Ottoman Empire. Empire in the 16th century. That's the, the backdrop for uh, the Shakespeare play Othello. We'll be talking more about that in the discussion. Uh, and part of how Venice gained an empire was through the slave trade. So Russell's claim here in this story is just totally false. It's, it's actually totally bonkers. I, I didn't really understand where that was coming from at all, like where she could have gotten that information. Because in fact, the complete opposite is true. Venice was the hub of the medieval slave trade. Uh, it is true though, that they did not sell Christian slaves to non-Christians. That was an important part of the, the slave trade. Uh, but yeah, Venice was hugely important for slavery. Uh, they were not opposed to slavery in, in any way. So uh, that's my small rant here about, uh, about something she's gotten wrong about the historical details. Uh, really, I think that's the last bad history rant that I'm going to have here in the episode. So we'll, we'll move on from it. I mean, I take no joy in criticizing this gorgeous story <laughs> on these lines. But hey, you know, this is my day job, so it stands out to me. Uh, but the point of all of this uh, really is to, to set up that this is a story about racism and about how the doctor's blackness means that he can't be a real doctor. He can't help sick people, but instead has to work underground to prevent dead people from becoming zombies because zombies are a problem here on this island. Uh, I say zombie, but that's not quite right. The, the Serbo-Croat, or just maybe we'll say Croatian word, uh, Vuklak here uh, translates more literally to werewolf. Uh, and it's, it's part of a folklore that's common in the Balkan Peninsula about undead people who like to eat 
other people, like living people. I mean, uh, we're going to see how Russell is using this. But I, I think that what is more interesting here, actually, is that this is present more as magical realism. This is just a fact of life on this island. And so there's a civil servant whose job it is to make sure that the newly dead stay in their graves. I mean, the, the doctor here is basically the county coroner. Yeah, exactly. And and I just want to point out here, and we're going to get more into what exactly the doctor does, but uh, this story really proves the old adage, uh, don't go to fantasy stories to learn facts about history. It's never really (laughs) going to serve you all that well. Well, recently, uh, a new student has arrived on the island, and it's a student for the doctor, uh, the the doctor of this story. And the doctor has taken this student to his surgical theater in the cave, And he explains to the student that few people on the continent, uh, that that is, you know, the European continent, know about the dangers that a body faces after death. But this is when a body is most defenseless. The student, though, he's not really all that attentive. And the doctor writes this about this new student in his journal. What a petulant boy they have sent me. Mere fear of the outbreak infects him, and he counts himself foremost among its victims. How terrible for you to have your mind occupied by the suffering of others. Uh, So this doctor also has no respect for the boy. And the boy had come from Lestovo, where there has been a recent outbreak of these uh, Vukodlachi. It was a terrifying ordeal. Surgeries were performed in the open. There were mass exhumation of graves. I mean, this is like, you know, you got to open the sewer to see how the city works. People do not like to be aware of the the real nuts and bolts of how things function. They just want to continue to float on the surface. And this outbreak clearly was a was a major cultural moment for Lestovo. And part of the problem was that the only posthumous surgeon in Listova was old and half blind. So the student, his name is Yure Damasto, had been sent to the doctor in order to learn the trade and then ostensibly return back to Listova and become the new uh, posthumous surgeon there. But the doctor is almost offended by this student. He suspects that he may be an illegitimate aristocratic heir and that he'll be a failure at this trade. Yure himself admits that he'd hoped for a different life. And hey, this is also his first time being in a cave. So we we see here how there's this interplay or maybe this core idea moving through the story, a theme of how people perceive one another and the resultant ways that they're treated. But all that's, you know, thematic. What's important is that tonight... They have a patient, well, really several several patients, but this patient is a woman with red hair. So just what is it that a posthumous surgeon does? Well, as any person who dies may become a Vukolak after death, the posthumous surgeon ensures that they cannot walk. They can't leave their coffin. So he severs the hamstrings. The Vukolak is not a person. They don't have a soul. So the doctor does no harm to the person that you just loved and buried. Rather, it's more like he's clipping the wings of a, of a bird. And tonight he will clip the wings of the woman with red hair and others. And he's trying to instruct Yure in the practice here. But Yure is easily distracted and he wanders around the cave and he doesn't pay close attention to the work that the doctor is performing. 
We also learn now that it's not just people who can become undead. This can happen to animals too. And when the doctor was a child, he loved tending to injured animals. He really just wanted to help everyone and everything. He wanted everything to be better, but he could never escape the contingencies of his body, his skin color, and his station. So he's been trapped in the caves while the real doctors healed the living above him. But he did receive help from one of those doctors, a, a Jesuit, who trained our doctor, the posthumous surgeon in his trade, and helped him to realize how their work does help the living. It treats their fears. So th- the doctor performs his nightly tasks, and the next day, uh, after the day after they perform the surgery on, on the red-haired wo- woman, who's a, a young countess, as it happens, Yure returns to the cave slash surgical theater, bleary-eyed and unfocused. He complains to the doctor of howling in the night, and the doctor tells him that it's just jackals. But the season is wrong for jackals. It's something. Something's doing this. But what it is doesn't matter because Yuri is just a mess. He hasn't learned anything yesterday, and he's entitled attitude about how he's got the wrong job or vocation is getting the better of him. And he's untrainable. I mean, he's a bad employee, basically. Furthermore, the doctor can tell just by looking at him that Yuri thinks the doctor's mistreating him, and it's clear to the doctor that Yuri hates him. But the doctor can understand this. He carries his own resentment about his position on the island. The imagery in this story is just awesome. Uh, I mean, you know, these zombie birds are great, but these these scenes here in the, the flashbacks are, are about the doctor's youth and, and how that compares with the young man who has been sent to him to be his student. You know, I say compare, but contrast really is probably what I should say, because the doctor was a prodigy. I mean, that's, that's clear. And even though he could not be a doctor to the living, one of the two doctors on the island trained him to be a doctor to the dead. Uh, of course, I love the idea of this aging Jesuit secretly fighting the the undead and then training the smart kid from the wrong side of the tracks to take his place. It's a, it's a great twist on a classic, you know, I mean, I mean, right. It's also the exact plot of the karate kid, I guess, and other stories, but it's such a contrast to this young aristocrat from Listovo who does not want to be there and, and seems to have some difficulty paying attention, maybe because he doesn't actually want to be there. But we also have to wonder if the doctor is really giving him a fair chance because his uh, his rage against the machine might be clouding his perceptions here. And we should say maybe a little bit more about Yuri de, de Mosto, the, the young boy who's been sent to him. You, you said, Brandon, that the, the doctor suspects he might be illegitimate, but I don't think that's quite right. Uh, Yuri de Mosta is an aristocrat from this island of Listovo. All of this is taking place on these islands that are, you know, just like half a mile apart from each other. Like you could swim the distance, but they're all off the coast and they have their sort of self-contained societies and you know self-contained uh, governments that have independent relationships with the seat of empire in, in Venice. And what Russell sets up here is that Lestovo is run by 13 families of uh, of elites and, and has been for a really long time. Yuri's from one of them. But the thing is that when the narrator looks at Yuri, he sees traces of Black ancestry. 
I don't think that that's meant to indicate that uh, maybe he's the son of a prostitute or a slave or something like that. I think this is simply, and in fact, I think Russell points this out, right? Has the doctor thinking about swirling genetics and how uh, generations can go by before traits will manifest. And so I think that this is just really meant to be about generations and generations ago. Somewhere back generations ago is a black ancestor. And the contrast here, right, or the point of this is that even though Yuri has the same thing he has, some black ancestry, right, because we know that the doctor's ancestry is not entirely black, that his grandmother and his father, at least, were white Croatian-speaking people here on the island, that the same is true of Yuri, but because Yuri is from the upper class, because he's from the aristocracy, he has more opportunities than the doctor. He has opportunities the doctor can't possibly have. He can be welcomed into society in ways that the doctor can't. That's something we'll take up in the discussion, but I think I wanted to make clear that that's what was going on there, that I don't think it's about sort of legitimacy or not. Yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, right. Uh, a right clarification. I, I probably took a shortcut there in the uh, recap because it's a really long recap to, in a way, to evoke like his his background being a a question mark in in this society, which is about race, not about uh, whether or not he's the he can inherit from his family. So I, I'm really grateful you clarified that. Right, and and one other thing I should actually add to that is that the doctor says something about this to Yuri. He says, with a face like that, and Yuri doesn't know what he's talking about. And of course, what we're supposed to take from that is that although the doctor very clearly feels his blackness is his chief identity, it's the thing that people see when they look at him, Yuri has never experienced this because what people see when they look at him is not his skin color or his race. It's his class identity. It's his wealth and his position in society, or maybe the wealth and position of his father in society. Yeah, both of these characters have real chips on their shoulder. They're they're kind of temperamentally more similar, I think, than they are different. Absolutely. That's, I think, something we need to be keeping in mind as we go here. And, you know, I really want to just, I want to circle back to the thing I started with, which is just that, you know, although this is a third-person narrative at this point. It is a tightly focused. And so we are getting things from the doctor's perspective, and we are going to be questioning. We need to be questioning the veracity of that perspective and the veracity of the narrative that we're getting here. Is this really you know, the way that Yuri is. Is he really this bad of a student? Those are some questions that we'll come back to. Uh, before we get back to the the recap, I know I'm really hijacking this <laughs> recap episode here. Uh, I just want to talk about the great world building in these sections. We learned some just cool stuff here, right? We learned that undeadness, uh, I'm just going to call it that, we learned that undeadness is a problem on these Adriatic islands, but but not so much on the mainland. But we also learned that it is akin to a contagion. Uh, there can be outbreaks of this, we are never going to learn what the mechanism of transmission is or, or really like how many patients the doctor receives in a week or a month. Uh, but we do also here learn that the doctors have to do their work at night and maybe even specifically under moonlight, maybe even under a full moon. Uh, that's the imagery that we get anyway. And that's really interesting because this is the opposite of standard horror, vampire, and werewolf lore where, you know, daylight is your friend. So that's a really cool twist there. And also I just have to say, I love this cave. There's a sense of something numinous uh, about it. And it also, to my mind anyway, recalls the cave of the resurrection in the, in the Gospels. 
I love this cave imagery as well. I mean, it reminds me of the the kind of uh, grotto in the Count of Monte Cristo where he finds all of the <laughs> treasure. I mean, it's just it's just rich with these, you know, literary evocations. And I think Russell's just such a fantastic writer. Such a fantastic writer. Well, that evening, uh, you know, after Eurake comes in the morning and complains about jackals or howling, some men come to the doctor's house and Yure is with them. They accuse him of making a mistake. The red-haired girl is the daughter of Peter Nikonitich. He's a count, obviously, and, and she has been spotted in the woods behind the cemetery. The boy has seen her and has accused the doctor of incorrectly performing the procedure. The doctor responds that this is impossible. It's clear to him that Yuri has gone to the authorities and convinced them that the doctor has made a mistake, even though the doctor tries to tell them that the boy knows nothing about the surgical technique and he's in no place to criticize the doctor's skills. Yuri is acting real squirrely and he's hiding behind the men he brought uh, with him to accuse the doctor and all of this just outrages the doctor. And furthermore, it's not just that Yuri has accused him. It's it's the weight of this accusation. The doctor doesn't believe that all of this, men coming to his house, accusing him of making a mistake, of, of, of having the Count's daughter rise again, he doesn't believe that this could be the result only of his young apprentice's accusation. Like, they wouldn't just come based on that. But the men who come say that other sightings have been reported. So the doctor asks, who has claimed to have seen the girl? And the men tell him. And so the doctor learns the name of his enemies. Right. This now finally is the central conflict of the story. The doctor is accused of something that he knows that he didn't do. And even though there is no evidence to support the charge, he is on the defensive from the very start, simply because of his race, his class, and his occupation. And it seems to him that what is happening here is that the boy doesn't like taking orders from him, doesn't like the way that he's being treated by someone who is lesser than him on all three of these counts, his race, his class, and his occupation, and so has gone to others of his class to do something about it. And others join in, though their motives are going to be different, perhaps, or you know, we don't really ever get them, but my guess would be that everyone's got sort of their own individual motives here. And you know, this is more or less what happens in an early modern witch trial as well, right? Something that's contemporary to this story. And I, I do want to highlight that the intersection here of, of ethnic and class identities is just manifest here, right? The aristocrats will only speak Venetian rather than Croatian, even though they probably could speak Croatian as well, but they want the doctor to know his place. Right. And this is just the first of many injustices that characterize the the doctor's experience in the world. After the men leave, the doctor is left alone with his family, and he can see the way that this accusation has reshaped him in his wife's eyes. And her mind. And first he thinks that her love for him is leaving her, but then something worse happens. She forgives him. She forgives him a mistake that he never committed. And so becomes a man that he is not in her eyes. And he can't live to bear with such a misshapen identity in the eyes of those he loves, but also in the eyes of the townspeople as well. He tells his wife that 
The surgery was a success and no woman wanders the woods. If you cannot believe me, then you are not my family. He just can't bear to be encountered as the person who the society and his family now think that he is. This is kind of a great example of, of we, we've brought up uh, what W.B. Du Bois calls double consciousness in uh the souls of black folk and in his general thinking about race in America as well, where you're not just the person you are, but you're the person that people encounter you as and how this is not a great way to live. And I think, uh, Karen Russell is doing a beautiful job giving us kind of the experience of somebody who was thrust into this conflict in a terrible way. Two more nights pass and no Vukodlak has been captured or even seen by those who are hunting it. But the rumor of his failure are infecting the town. The rumor is morphing into something terrible. Now people are claiming that he has interfered with the Countess and this is why she rose again. He goes to the house of his friends, pleading his case to them, but even they think it's plausible that he made a mistake. He's just human. Maybe it'll blow over. It's one mistake in all of his years of practice, but in his mind, in the doctor's mind, he's just done for. Another night passes. So we're three nights out, the kind of the night of the doctor being awake, I suppose, uh, where the story opens and nothing but a red tailed squirrel has been found to match the description of this red haired countess. The hunters begin to wonder if Yure lied to them. But the truth is far past the point of mattering. The facts of the case no longer mean anything because there's too much at stake for those who have accused the doctor of malpractice. For instance, they've put their own reputations on the line, and clearly they're privileging those over the truth. So the hunters exhume the coffin of the young countess, but it's empty. Of course, though, any anyone could have moved the body in the past three nights. Well, now we're with the doctor the night before he is to give his deposition, and he begins to wonder if the rumors are actually true. He wants to be able to convince everyone that his hand did not slip, but his faith in himself is flagging, and he wonders how he can convince anyone of the truth of these events if he's failing to believe in them himself. He has become infected by the rumors. He sees himself now constantly through the eyes of others, and he, he doesn't have his own sense of self anymore. He is this other man that is not himself, the one who has endangered the town by failing to perform his duty. He has become the monster to others. He's giving his deposition. He tells the tribunal that he can be trusted with any patient. Sentimentality, even if that were an issue in this case, which it's not because he did nothing to the young countess but performed the surgery, but still, sentimentality plays no part in his ability to perform his surgeries. He's, for instance, he's performed these surgeries on several of his own children who have died. He even performed the surgery on a child of his that was born still and, and insisted on performing the surgery over his wife's pleading and arguments to the contrary, that, that the posthumous surgery was necessary. And that particular surgery was a serious blow to the doctor's sense of, of well-being overall. 
it doesn't seem as though the trial will work in the doctor's favor and he won't know for months until a verdict is pronounced whether or not it is going to come out for or against him. The files from the investigation and depositions have to be reviewed by the Council of Ten, and they're on the ship to be done so. But but none of that actually matters. We're past the point of truth here, as I said before, because the rumor persists. And in persisting, the rumor mutates. There are new speculations about what happened. Maybe the doctor let his hand slip on purpose. Perhaps the countess was pregnant with the doctor's child. The doctor didn't perform the surgery on that stillborn child like he claimed. And if you go out into the woods, you can see that child crawling around on all fours. Yet no Vukodlak has been found. Uray continues to feed the flames of this rumor as well. He tells investigators that now he remembers more, that the doctor was in love with the young countess, that he did things to her body and let her return undead so that their love affair could continue. And these rumors sicken the doctor. His wife is heartbroken to hear them, but she continues to forgive the doctor. And by forgiving him, in the doctor's mind, she's admitting that she believes the rumors on some level. Yeah. And this, this belief from his wife is really what's destroying him. And, you know, we aren't there yet, but all of this business about you know the, the trial, the the deposition, these charges, the investigation—I mean, this is a, it's a Kafkaesque nightmare, right? I mean, there's nothing the doctor can do in the face of the state here. There's nothing he can do in the face of this bureaucracy. They're just going to endlessly investigate, endlessly interview until there is just nothing left, right? The the state exists to do something, and so it has to do something, even if there isn't actually anything to do, because there doesn't seem to actually be a zombie walking around on the island, right? But the doctor is totally powerless against this, because he can't prove a negative, right? We can't prove negatives, and this is destroying him, right? This is This is crushing him. I also want to go back to thinking about the the doctor's children who have died. I mean, this is pre-modernity, so children die as a matter of course, and especially uh, poor children or you know children who are not from the elite are going to die at a higher rate than elite children will. And we actually skipped over just a real brief section as just kind of a, a flashback in which the the doctor and his middle daughter encounter. Uh, it's the winter time. They encounter a uh, a funeral for one of the elite children who's died from pneumonia. And this is a really big procession through the the town that dominates the the island, the one big town on the island. And the the daughter asks why this child is getting all this attention, getting this big parade, essentially, when this has never happened for any of her siblings who have died. And of course, this is about class and about race, right? And and in the account of this, the, the doctor's Rage, which I would describe as cool yet seething, right? It's it's a rage at the injustice of his society. I mean, it just leaps off the page here because it is an injustice that demeans and even dehumanizes him despite his aptitudes. And it's an injustice that has taken the, the life of his child, right? It's pretty clear that he considers at least that his children would not have died of the things that killed them if they had been born to, to wealth or just not born in poverty and squalor which is his station in life. But then, of course, also, his society doesn't even recognize that his child ever existed, right? His child didn't get a funeral like this. And he has rage at this. 
Absolutely. But it also highlights the, the general inconsistencies in the doctor's thinking that he believes his child wouldn't have died if he'd been able to practice medicine above ground, if he'd been welcomed into the city. Yet it is the, the child of uh, an elite who has died uh, and they are not immune to the plague of pneumonia that or the, the outbreak of ammonia that hits the island every, you know, every winter. Uh, and so it's the doctor's own sense of injustice distorts his, his view of reality as well. And that's another kind of major part of this story is not just is the doctor misshapen by the way he's viewed by others by internalizing that sense of, of double consciousness, he's also misshaped the world around him by his own senses of injustice. Nobody's encountering anything on neutral objective territory in the story, our doctor included. Right. And now we're actually pretty close to the end of this story, and that's going to get dialed up to 11 as we continue. Right. Well, the doctor's going mad. Glenn, you pointed out that he's just being crushed <laughs> by these rumors. And he just starts pounding on doors, telling anyone who will listen of his innocence. And his wife is like, can't do anything about this. So she's like, let's just find a ship. You find us a ship. We'll move away and we'll start over. But the doctor can't hear this. He doesn't care that his wife is trying to find a way forward. His family believes the rumors. His town believes the rumors. His reputation has been destroyed. There's nothing he can do. There's nowhere he can go where he can put his skills to use again. So he goes to the house of Nikonitich, which is the family, again, that this countess belonged to. And he lurks around the beautiful estate. He's not breaking in to steal the deed of the church back, um, <laughs> but he's just lurking around and the family is having dinner and they have invited a guest to stay with them. And that guest is Ure Dumasto. He looks younger than when the doctor first met him. He actually looks like the, the petulant boy that the doctor wrote about in his journal. And the doctor realizes that in the eyes of, of Peter Nikonitich, he is the man that he is not. He is only this other man. He is not the doctor who has protected the town from, from the undead. He imagines a scenario where Yuri moved the body of the girl. And he's just caught in his own mental world here, his own kind of reality scape. The doctor realizes his plan to invade the dinner before it was complete and proclaim his innocence is dumb. It's not going to work. Plus, he can't do it. He's paralyzed by his thoughts and by watching uh, by and by recognizing on some level what the real world effect of doing this will be. He'll, he'll cement his position as that other man if he invades the dinner. It's pointless. And at this point, the doctor is in despair. So he collapses on the staircase. Sometime later, he's found there by Peter. The doctor tries to tell Peter that he has come to defend himself, but he begins laughing hysterically and insulting the order of things on Corfu. And he's causing a real commotion, so much so that Ure can hear the shouting from the street and looks down from a window in this palatial estate. 
The doctor finds a moment of stability, of courage in himself, and he begs Peter to remember him. And he tries to convince Peter that, that he, the doctor, did not touch Peter's daughter. And as the doctor's pleading, he, he sees Peter's grief in losing his daughter reflected back to him. And I think Peter has a moment of, of recognition here with the doctor as well, that maybe the doctor is, is innocent, or at least the doctor is full of grief about this situation too. And he sort of gently tells the doctor that his daughter is gone and the doctor should leave as well. The doctor does leave and pretty quickly realizes he's being followed. Something is moving out there. He thinks it's the young redheaded countess and he calls out her name, but it is not she who follows him. It's his middle daughter. He asks her what she's doing out here. And she tells him that she wanted to know where he went when he leaves them at night, but it's very cold outside. And his only thought is to get her, his daughter back home before she freezes. It's snowing and it's cold and she's not wearing shoes. But then there is something out there besides his daughter. It's a bear. A bear <laughs> comes out of the woods and confronts them. It's a brown bear, but it has striking red fur. And now the doctor knows what everyone has been seeing out in the woods. Not the Vukodlak, but a bear. And he can explain everything to everyone now and get his life back. He and his daughter and the bear have a, a kind of a long stare down where they share this moment, this moment that really mirrors, I think, the moment between Peter, who probably has red hair like his daughter, and the doctor. And the moment passes and the bear drops its defensive stance and moves on. The doctor rushes to get his daughter home, but is concerned that the cold has already invaded her, like, say, a rumor. <laughs> but... The doctor's really concerned about pneumonia. She's already coughing. The doctor at home tells his daughter to tell her mother what she saw. But the only thing the daughter says is nobody in a kind of daze. The doctor's wife is furious with the doctor for endangering their daughter. And she kicks him out of the home. Now the doctor is homeless. He sleeps on wooden pallets outside of one of the sailor's brothels. And he has fully become the other man. He is now only the person that people have begun to see him as. His transformation is complete. There's nothing else but what people perceive him to be. Yeah, this is this is rock bottom here. And at, at this point, really, the, the the point at which he goes to confront the powers that be on the you know the higher up part of the city, the cliff face part of the the city, I actually have the impression that the Kafka esque nightmare is over. I mean, not that there aren't repercussions, but that the active investigating and the, the hearings are over. And it's really the doctor who won't let the matter drop while the, the local government refers the matter to the government in Venice uh, to decide what to do about this, to decide what to do with the doctor, if he's guilty of something or not, and if so, what, what should be done. And presumably, this would be like a matter of a year or more before there's any kind of resolution to this. But rather than go back to his life and prove himself through his continued good actions, continued good performance as the posthumous doctor, the doctor lets his obsession with his reputation get the better of him. And he ignores, even in dangerous, right, his, his family with no 
concrete, attainable objective in mind. He's just shouting into the wind for the sake of shouting into the wind, and it is doing way more harm than good at this point. Yeah, it's unclear to me whether or not, you know, the chief surgeon on the island has made him turn in his badge and gun or, and he's like suspended <laughs> without pay. I, I that That's like not really clear to me how much of his unwillingness to go back to work is the result of some sort of like suspension and he has to wait for the matter to be put to rest or if it's all self-inflicted. I, I suspect it's a combination of the both uh, because people on this island will need him to continue to do the work. And I'm sure after he the the first rising of a Vukolak without him there on suspension to perform the work, they'll call him back and, and kind of put a rest to this. But he's certainly uh, making his own mess on some levels. Right, because he's got the guild knowledge, right? No one else knows how to do this. He, he hasn't taught the boy anything, or really maybe to put, we should put it, the boy hasn't learned anything that he's tried to teach him. So the only options would be to have the doctor continue in his role or get someone sent over from one of the other islands, right? That Those would be the only options there. So yeah, he might not be hanging around in the cave doing his job, though again, we don't know how frequently he has to actually perform these duties anyway. But yeah, I think at the first bit of trouble here, they're going to need him again. So yeah, that's totally my sense of it. Right. Well, as we said, it, it's kind of a moot point because this other man that the doctor has become is incapable of doing this anyway. He's a bum. He's homeless. He has no skills. He's outclassed. He's of a low caste. He's of the wrong race. And he thinks there's only one way to put an end to this whole situation. And so he writes this in his log. All believe me, not only a failed surgeon, but a corrupter of bodies. Even in my wife's embrace, I have begun to imagine my death. It is a dreadful rehearsal. My hands end my life again and again. I see my body lamed in its coffin, removed to a realm beyond all suspicion. Yet I am coming to see that this plan is the only means by which I can exonerate myself of those charges brought against me. With a steady hand, I will complete this surgery perfectly while still alive. This will mark the first and only surgery I perform on a living body. After hobbling myself, I will cut my throat. Thus will I prove to everyone on Cortula Island that emotion could never have stayed my hand or vitiated my efforts on behalf of the dead. Meantime, my wife is suffering, my daughters. The rumor continues to assail us from within, changing the contents of our minds. And so the doctor does what he intended to do, what he planned to do here in his journal entry. A second file is sent along to the Council of Ten, and it turns out that this case has never been, nor will ever be, resolved. We can examine the documentary evidence ourselves if we wish now, but this case has been merely abandoned. But we get a postscript here. <laughs> Something comes whistling out of the cave. It's a Vukodlak. It's the doctor who died in winter and emerged from the cave in a new season. He can smell the air. He has the hobbling scars on the back of his legs where he failed to hamstring himself before he slit his own throat. 
Perhaps the doctor admits to himself, I made a mistake. And this, to me, is a hilarious ending that really undermines everything we knew about the Foucault lock, about being undead, about everything that came before. And it's a marvelous capper to the story. Yeah, it's really dark. It's a real bit of dark comedy here. I mean, I, I, I love also how this closes out with the the fiction that Karen Russell has encountered these legal documents in the Venetian archives and has simply recounted the story for us. Uh, you know, that's a great device. It's a device that I I love especially. I don't know if I wish that it had shown up at the beginning or not. I think that's the way Gene Wolfe would have written this story. Uh, but I think it works just fine with without that. In fact, it may even work better without that. But yeah, this all ends in suicide and then the resurrection as a zombie, still with much of his mind intact. At least I, I think that he's still got much of his mind intact. That's how I read it. Maybe that's something we can take up in the discussion episode as well. I think he's got a deeper or more clear presence of mind than he has throughout the, the this places where we encountered him in this story. Well, on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. As we said at the top of the show, if you'd like to commission an episode of your own, you can do that by visiting the website, contact us via email or Twitter or Reddit. Uh, if you're a Patreon supporter, you get a discount on these episodes, of course, and even free episodes at, at some levels. And Patreon's a great place to send us a message about commissioning an episode as well. I mean, we love doing these commissioned episodes. So if you've got something you'd like to hear us talk about, we, we do hope that you'll uh, you'll do it. You hope you'll take us up on this. If you're not already supporting us on Patreon, please consider doing so. You can check us out at patreon.com slash Media. And if you're listening to us and you haven't reviewed us yet on the service you're listening to us on, please consider doing so. It helps a lot to get the word out. Also, hey, tell your friends about us. We'd love to have more listeners. <laughs> In the meanwhile, you can head over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit, uh, which is Clay Temple Media, and let us know what you thought of the recap of Black Corfu. Let us know what we got right, what we got wrong, and uh, we'll see you next time in our discussion. Yeah, we'll be back in really just a few days with that discussion episode, which I'm super looking forward to. There is a lot to talk about with this amazing story. So until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>